HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Listening, let's get real. The cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. That's food on Heritage Radio Network with me, Erica Wides, your host. And you know what? I am not a sports fan. Is that a surprise? I don't think so. Not a sports fan. If you've listened to this show at all over the last five years that I've been on the air here, you probably could have guessed that by now. I mean, it's not like I say anything against sports. But I don't think I really mentioned sports. You know, I don't think I've really, like, ever discussed my disgust for sports. I just don't like them. I'm just not a sports fan. I don't really get it. I don't really understand it. The whole organized professional sports team thing, the fanaticism about rooting for a specific team or caring who wins what or by how much or who did what. I don't get it. The obscene salaries and the crazy prices that are charged to fans for tickets and food and merchandise at the games. I, I, I don't get it. And also, it seems to me with organized sports, like there's no end to the means. You know, like once somebody wins a season or a championship, then they all have to start playing all over again the next year. Like it never happened. Shouldn't the reward for winning the season be that you never have to play the game again. I mean, that's why I would do it to win like a permanent exemption from ever having to play that sport again. Like, like getting a permanent note from your mom that says, dear coach of Erica's team, Erica's team won the championship this year. So please excuse her forever from having to ever play any more games of dodgeball. Thank you. Mrs. Erica's mom. 
That would have been great. That would have been so perfect had I ever been on any team at all, of course, let alone a team that ever won anything. I used to hide under the bleachers in the gym when we would play games involving balls being thrown my way. Anytime there was a ball being thrown at me, I would run and hide under the bleachers. Having to play team sports in gym for me was sheer torture. I was short. I wore glasses. I was chubby. I was unathletic. I was terrified. Plus, I didn't know any of the rules to these games. And nobody ever explained the rules to us overtly because it was assumed that we knew them. It was just assumed that we all had these tough, sports-loving, Korean War vet dads who played and watched games with us all the time. My dad led the officer's kids' Boy Scout troop in the Korean War on the army base in New Jersey where he stayed throughout the war as a Boy Scout leader and taught me stuff like ceramics and leather embossing, not the rules of football. I learned useful stuff, how to weld, how to use a bandsaw, not how to play baseball. So the first time we ever played kickball in gym in first grade outside on the baseball diamond during recess, no, during gym, they took us outside, I, I didn't know what we were doing. I had no idea what the rules were. For kickball. So when I was called up to kick, I, of course, walked my little tiny chubby body up there and spastically kicked the ball when it came to me and it went up into the side and behind me. And then I started running because that's what all the other kids did after they kicked the ball. They started running. I started running and all the boys started screaming at me, you're out, you're out. The meaning of which I didn't understand. Did it mean that I was out of the game completely? Like forever? which I hoped, or like I was done for the day and I could go sit quietly and look for tiny frogs in the grass, or was I just out this time? Did I get another turn? What did it mean? Was I out just for now? Was I out for just this game? Was I out for the whole semester? Was I out for my entire life? Nobody explained. Everybody, including the teacher, just assumed that everybody else knew the rules. Why explain them? Everyone knows the rules of kickball, right? It's the same as baseball. Well, not this tiny nerd. She didn't know them. I was never introduced and never indoctrinated into the world of sports culture, which explains a lot about me, I think. By the age of 11, we were an all-female household. And even before that, when my dad was still living with us, there were no ball games on the TV, no talk of teams and championships with the neighbor guys. My father was not a sports guy. He was a craftsperson and a teacher, not a sports guy. The culture of professional sports was totally foreign to me. I had no brothers either, so I had no encouragement to get involved in any sports, team, or otherwise. I remember hearing the term Super Bowl at a friend's one fall morning, the first time I ever heard it, and just assuming it was a big bowling game. Really, Super Bowl? bowling game. My mom bowled in a league, so that was the one sport I was familiar with. But I also knew that bowling involved driving in the station wagon to the bowling alley with a big plaid bag and then a lot of adults sitting around smoking cigarettes and pushing a button that made the ball come whooshing back from underground and then another button that made cocktails appear on a tray from a lady who looked like a pill-addled Loretta Lynn. That's what bowling was to me. Not exactly... The Kennedys tossing the football around the front yard. Now, just for the record, 
my mom didn't smoke or drink cocktails, and she was in a morning ladies bowling league. But I would tag along on occasional mornings when I didn't have preschool or I was sick and she couldn't miss her game. But I saw what went around. I saw what went on around me there, though. I saw what people did in bowling alleys. Super Bowl, indeed. Now, I'm obviously much, much older now than I was back then. And I'm still not a sports fan. It all still seems pretty futile to me. I don't get it. But I try. I do try a little bit. I try. My husband likes baseball. And so we occasionally go to a game. We're actually going this week to the Mets game. Because I kind of, I like the stadium experience. It's kind of cool to be in a structure that's that big in the open air. It's it, it's the immersive experience that I like. With all these other people drinking a $12 beer. I don't like that part. It's not so bad, though. The prices, though, are insane. $12 for a beer, $5 for a bottle of water. That should be illegal. That should be criminalized. $6 for fries. It's totally nuts. What happened to America's pastime? What American can afford that pastime anymore? What American could take their family of four for that sort of pastime? I, I don't understand this. Who, who goes to games anymore? There was an article last week. I can't remember in what, but I clicked on a link to it from the New York Times website. But it was an article about the Knicks and about how, I guess, how badly they did this year. Jack, you're a big Knicks fan, right? Bad year. Yeah, sore subject. Okay, I won't. Sorry. Sorry. I won't keep sticking my finger in that. I guess. Who cares? Right. Anyway, apparently the Knicks did really, really badly this year. Who knows? And because of that, I guess they felt so bad. They said that to make it up to their season ticket holder fans, their season ticket holders, about how awful the season was, they were going to make it up by giving away all the food for free at the last game of the season. Everything sold at Madison Square Garden that you can eat was free. Everything. Free. Beer included. Free. Lobster rolls. Because you know now stadiums serve like swanky food, right? It's not just pretzels and hot dogs anymore. It's upscale swanky food. I live near the Barclays Center in Brooklyn where the Nets play. And the Barclays Center serves all kinds of artisanal Brooklyn craft food. Which kind of makes me want to throw up, really. But anyway, all of it at Madison Square Garden for free. Lobster rolls, barbecue sandwiches, cheese steaks, giant packs of Twizzlers, cotton candy, sushi, everything free. So these two guys who are season ticket holders went, of course, and decided that they would eat as much as they could humanly, physically eat and then write an article about it. So they did it. They wrote the article about how much food they consumed. And it was a lot of food, over $600 worth of food, although considering the prices, that's like, you know, two beers and a pretzel. They felt compelled along with everyone else at that game, to eat or take or just throw away as much as they could possibly do, as much as they could, in some sort of gluttonous, getting-my-share, revenge orgy of eating and food waste. It was sickening, this article. They described people taking stuff simply because they could, like piles of pulled pork sandwiches where someone would just take a bite and then Toss the rest of it, not even in the garbage, but just on the ground. Just toss it on the floor. Because this is America. We have the freedom to do that. 
I guess they were saying, in a repulsively wasteful and infantile way, fuck you, Knicks, for losing all season. Now we're going to waste as much food as we possibly can just to stick it to you. Now that's sound logic, American style. Someone must have explained the rules of the game to them, because that's another game I never learned the rules of. Okay, we're going to take a short break. Then we'll be right back with more Sports Talk on Heritage Radio. And this one's Daphne and Apollo by Odetta Hartman. This is Heritage Radio Network. Born from discord and harmonies, raised by the rays of the fallen sun. Cool that rage about your cupid, makes half the killer of the mighty python. So a typical, a typical, a nicer heart. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Kane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Kane5.com. I love that song. That was really good. It's my girlfriend. I know. We hear a lot of her <laughs> around here these days. <laughs> Welcome back to Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, eating food, and talking sports on HeritageRadioNetwork.org with me, Erica Wise, your host. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Adam, my husband, he listens to sports radio when he's working at home alone. He likes 101.9 sports guys he knows i hate the sound of it i hate the sound of it i hate the sound of sports radio the same way i hate the sound of that show top gear i hate the way that sounds but sometimes we leave it on because it's his house too and it's to give him a break from the endless stream of npr that i keep on when i'm working at home now a few years ago on his sports station i heard the sports guy commentator guys, sports guys, talking about something called the over-under. Although this being New York, it was more like the over-under. You know, this is New York and all. Now, I asked Adam what the over-under was, and he explained to me that the over-under is something about a team's record for the season and wins and betting and Blah, 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 blah. It all turned into me like the sound of the teacher in the Charlie Brown specials. Because even though I asked, I don't really care what it means. So it never really stuck. Now, I've heard the explanation of the over-under at least three or four times since then. And I even asked him about it yesterday as I was writing this episode because I wanted to use it in the show. But I still can't remember really what it means because it doesn't stick because, as I said, I don't care. What it really means, eh, I just like the way it sounds, the over-under. And to me, the over-under is not a term about sports. It's a term that sums up American culture, specifically our culture and its relationship to food. We are the over-under. We invented the over-under. Look at those guys at the Knicks game. Hmm? After the Industrial Revolution and the mechanization and centralization of farming and the invention of post-war chemical fertilizing and the subsequent government subsidizing of com- commodity grains and then the subsequent shift in our diets to a corn and soybean orgy of grain and grain-fed products, we are now living the over-under. 
Feast or famine? Well, you know what? We've got both. It's the over-under. Only here in America is it possible to be both fat and malnourished at the same time. You're welcome. You can gorge on shitty, processed, nutritionless food, weigh 300 pounds, and still suffer the diseases of malnutrition. That's the real over-under. You can go to a restaurant and order a meal that has more calories in one entree than most people's great-grandmas ate in an entire day. That's the over-under, too. And at that same restaurant, you can have a slab of cheesecake for dessert that doubles that number of calories again, but then wash it down with 48 ounces of a beverage that has zero calories that you're paying for, that you are paying a company money for, and that may just kill you, and that's the over-under, too. Or that we produce more food on this planet than we can ever consume, more than double the daily caloric needs of every human and animal in this country, and yet we throw away almost 40% of it, whether through rejecting it in the fields for not being perfect or producing it so cheaply that there are no buyers so it gets dumped before leaving the farm, or in transit when the systems fail, or in supermarkets when they trash thousands of pounds of food simply because it doesn't look pretty anymore, because an arbitrary date stamped on it that has no legal bearing or meaning says it's time to dump it. Or maybe it's in your fridge and it's slowly going bad because we're all too spoiled to feel compelled to use up what we buy. And we feel okay about throwing it away. There's no taboo against food waste anymore. That's the big over-under too. America, land of the free, home of the big over-under. We produce so much food so quickly and so efficiently that we then have to reject much of it because our system of using it, distributing it, and sorry, using it and distributing it is designed to scare us into thinking that five minutes out of refrigeration or 12 hours past an expiration date and we're dead. I've discussed food waste here before multiple times, many episodes about food waste, but last night, I was lucky enough to be invited to a screening of a new documentary called Just Eat It, A Food Waste Story. Now, this Canadian couple made it, and they had previously made a documentary about producing zero garbage called The Clean Bin Project, something like that. They made this documentary, and it was bought by MSNBC, and MSNBC will be airing it on April 22nd at 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And I implore you to implore everyone you know to tell everyone else they know to watch it because it was really good. Now, I thought I had a pretty solid grip on the amounts of food waste produced in the U.S., but even I was shocked by this film. The couple who made the film lived on scavenged food for six months. They collected discarded food from dumpsters and from stores that were rejecting it for six months. And between them, collected $20,000 worth of food. That's only what two people taking the perfectly good stuff out of dumpsters behind stores collected. $20,000 worth of food. That doesn't even take into consideration all the waste that happens before the food is even harvested or produced. By the way, this was just dumpster food, the end game. It was really horrifying. I mean, I feel like I do a pretty good job of not wasting food in my life. And you know I love the discount produce shelf, which I've talked about a lot. But even I can only eat so many overripe pears. Think of all the overripe pears that are getting tossed because I can't rescue them all. I'm like some crazy cat lady, but with pears. This is the over-under. We overproduce like crazy. 
then feel so comfortable with the excess that we allow almost half of it to be dumped, underutilized, wasted. While one in 12 Americans have trouble affording food, it's sick. We are a sick, sick country. When we overproduce and overstock our stores and our homes and our restaurant plates, we waste. My parents, children of World War II and the Depression, were super strict about food waste. We didn't do it. We ate it. We used it up. My grandmother reused her tea bags multiple times. We ate leftovers all the time. I'm still that way. I'll cook a big batch of chilies or chili or lentils or I'll roast a chicken or whatever, and we eat that all week. I don't mind eating the same thing every day for four or five days. It's not really an issue for me. We're so spoiled by choice. We don't need a different meal every meal every day. I don't mind it. I kind of like it. I like feeling like I got my money's worth and I produced as little waste as possible. It's the Laura Ingalls in me, you know. The grandchild and child of war and famine-stricken times. I think it stays in your DNA. It's why I hate buffets. I hate buffets. Ugh. Excessive spreads. Just the thought of Las Vegas and all of its buffets makes me break out into a cold sweat. I hate buffets. And even though I shop at stores like Costco, it actually gives me anxiety to load up the cart with too much stuff because I fear not using it up in time, not being able to consume what I purchase, having to throw it away. When you think about the resources that go into producing the food and the land and the water, the human labor, the petroleum, and then dumping it all into a landfill where it just rots and produces methane. In the film, they said something like the water that's tied up or bound up in all the food that we waste is enough water to provide for 500,000 households. No, 500 million households for a year. That much water. Food waste doesn't biodegrade like it would in a forest or a field. If you threw your apple core into a forest, it would break down. Microbial action, sunlight, air, wind insects but in landfills there's not enough oxygen or water or sun or soil microbes to break it down slowly and methodically so it just rots and it makes methane which is one of our greenhouse gases depressing isn't it i know let's take a little break and we'll cheer up a bit and then i'll tell you a funny story when we get back to make it up to you And this cheerful song is called Three Weeks by somebody named Space Ghost. We'll be right back. Yeah, that was cheery. Thanks, Jack. Welcome back. That was appropriate, actually. It's kind of scary doom and gloom welcome back to let's get real the cooking show about finding preparing and eating food and today sports although we've moved on from the sports metaphor we're done with that part now we're talking about food waste i know it's depressing so speaking of the over under oh there's the sports metaphor it's back the over under being as we overproduce massive amounts of grain here in the u.s due to government subsidies of commodity crops which we've talked about many times before we also overproduce Animals, because someone has to eat all that corn and soy, and we do, oh, we do in many, many, many ways. I mean, that corn and soy are the foundation of foodiness. Foodiness wouldn't exist without the over-under, because we overproduce those commodity crops so much, you got to find a way to use them up. So you either make cheese doodles or you make pirate's booty. Either way, it's all still crap made from overproduced commodities. 
Foodiness would not exist without the over-under in America. That's all. Talk about, I mean, foodiness, that's the over-under right there. It's like we overcompensate to try to make these snacks that are healthy or these things that seem really good for us when we don't even actually need them. They serve no purpose. They're like a zero-sum game. Hmm. Where was I? Oh, someone has to eat all that corn and soy, and we do. But so do livestock animals, especially chickens. We produce more chicken now than we've ever produced or eaten in history. The amount of chicken we eat is so astronomically high, it's almost mind-boggling. Industrial chicken producers can grow a chicken to full size, slaughter size, in six weeks by feeding it a steady diet of corn and soybeans and antibiotics. What used to take nearly six months, we can now do in six weeks. Speed chickens. And that spells trouble because in the rush to grow them bigger and cheaply and fast, they can get sick. Really sick. So sick that nearly one in four, one in four industrially produced chickens on the market is now contaminated with salmonella. One in four. Those are odds even I can figure out. And I don't understand odds or numbers or sports. One in four. That's not a good over-under right there. You hear what I'm saying? So generally, minor salmonella contamination, it's okay. You can, you can kill it. You can address it by thorough cooking. It's when the salmonella contamination is bad. People get sick. People die. But cooking kills salmonella in small amounts. And salmonella dies at 137 degrees Fahrenheit. 137 but the government tells us to cook our chicken to 165. Now, that's not just a built-in safety cushion for dummies like they do with pork. Because it's the same thing with pork. They used to say cook it to 170. And trichinosis dies. Same thing, like 135 or something. They've actually revised that finally. But that's not just a safety cushion in chicken. It's because undercooked chicken is kind of gross. It's gelatinous. It's chewy. Chicken is a meat that has to be fully congealed. The proteins have to completely denature and congeal. They have to go from translucent and pink to opaque and white. That's how you know chicken's done. It's not like red meat where there's a whole sh- you know grade of different shades of pink that you can choose from. With chicken, you either cook it or you don't cook it or you overcook it. And there's a not-so-fine line between cooked and overcooked chicken. I mean, let's talk about the under-over. The under-over here with chicken. When I cook a chicken breast, I cook it to 155, not 165. Because at 155, they're fully opaque. They're done, which is what you want. But they're also still very juicy, which is also what you want. And I've talked about this before, actually. But people are so used to eating dust-dry chicken breast that they cannot even conceive of eating a juicy piece of chicken breast. They're shocked by it. Or they actually prefer it dry, which is so weird and so, like, brainwashy and Orwellian in a way. Like, oh, no, no, we've always eaten it really dry. We have to eat it dry because that's how you eat it. It's dry, and we like it better dry, even though it shouldn't be dry. Out of fear, most people cook the shit out of their chicken. They've been indoctrinated. They've been told you should be fearful. And yeah, you should be fearful because one in four is contaminated with salmonella. But you don't have to be that fearful. Now, I generally cook either whole birds, you know, waste, remember, waste, or just thighs. I like thighs. And only organic and pastured ones at that when I can get them. But when I teach, we use 
other parts. We use bone in breasts, bone in thighs. I tried using legs, but nobody would eat them. And of course, every time I teach, I have to address doneness and teach how to tell doneness when you're cooking chicken, because that's my job when I'm teaching. So every time I teach about chicken, we have to talk about doneness. So I explain about instant read thermometers and testing for doneness by touch and all the other things you need to know and about the internal temperatures that you want to reach and about not overcooking the breast meat and all that. Then we're done cooking the meal and then we sit down and we eat juicy, perfectly cooked chicken. And it's so good that the people eating it fall over off their chairs because they've never eaten something like that. They're used to eating it like dust. So I said I would tell you a story, right? I promised you a story at the end and you're going to get a story. So I'm teaching last week and we're cooking pan roasted chicken parts because we make that a lot and we sit down to eat and predictably people are falling off their chairs because the breast meat isn't like dust at all, but like juicy, tasty food. Tastes like food, not dust. And a woman in the class starts talking to me and she tells me that she can't believe how briefly the chicken was cooked, how short of a time it spent in the oven. And I say to her, but it was in the oven for like 20 minutes. That's a long time, even after we seared it first in the pan. And she said, well, when I cook chicken, oh, and I said, and they were bone in, and bone in slows things down a lot. 20 minutes is a long time. And she says, well, when I cook chicken, I buy boneless, skinless breasts, and I put them on a sheet pan in the oven, and I put them in the oven at 400 degrees, and I cook them for an hour. An hour. This time, I was the one falling off my chair. An hour, I said. Yeah, she said. I thought it needed an hour to make it safe. Is it kind of like eating a Birkenstock? I asked. Mm, kind of, I guess. I just thought that's how it needed to be, she said. And you don't put any oil or butter or salt or anything on it. You just bake it naked, dry, unseasoned for an hour, I asked her. Yeah. Talk about your over-under. I'm surprised her poor little chicken breast didn't just explode into a cloud of dust when she cut into it. I've seen some overcooking in my day and plenty of undercooking, but that was really extreme. Now, if you're sitting here listening and going, well, I don't get it. What's wrong? Because you don't cook and you've never cooked. A boneless, skinless chicken breast in the oven, maybe 12, 15, 14 minutes. If it's really big, maybe 15, an hour, an hour. It, it like blows my mind. That's like, that goes beyond the over under. That's like... That's like a statistic that, like, even the Knicks couldn't have beaten this year. The Mets, maybe. But not the Knicks. That was for you, Jack. Yeah, you know it's bad when you're getting made fun of for being a Knicks fan on Let's Get Real. Yeah, seriously. I don't even know what I'm talking about. But I know the Mets are actually having a good season, so I threw that in. Anyway, we're just about out of time on today's Sports Talk, the over-under of foodiness. We have to go now. It's lunchtime. I gotta go. <laughs> So remember, if you don't want to eat foodiness over under shit and you don't want to eat chicken breast that's like dust, keep listening to Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, eating, food, and sports here on Heritage Radio Network with me, Erica Weitz. Thanks, Jack in the booth. Thanks, Chris Nutter, for originally conceiving the show with me. Thanks to Ben Kaplan for the theme music. We'll see you next week, sports fans. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. 
You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.